Hello and welcome to this podcast for CPD Online. My name is Jennifer Powell. I'm a higher trainee in general adult psychiatry and I'm the trainee editor. Today I'm joined by three guests, Dr. Alison Wood, Dr. Gemma Trainer, and Dr. Justine Rothwell. And we're going to be talking about self-harm in adolescence. And this is to accompany their recent CPD Online module, which is on the same topic. Um, so thanks everyone for joining me today. It's really great to have you all here. I wondered if you might want to start just by introducing yourselves and explaining a bit about what led you to write about this topic. So I might start with Gemma. Okay. Hi, um, my name is uh, Gemma Trainer, and I have uh, over 35 years of working within CAMS. And uh, me and my two colleagues that are on the podcast with me, we have spent, out of those years, we've spent the last 25 years actively involved in research, so looking at effective interventions with self-harm. And uh, my speciality is a consult. I was a consultant nurse for quite a long time, and uh, I specialised in self-harm as part of my uh, daily uh, grind on the, in the CAM services. And uh, more, I'm now a senior lecturer at Liverpool John Moores and a visiting lecturer at King's College in London, and I run the postgraduate modules on CAMs. Amazing. Thanks, Gemma. Um, I'll come to you, Justine. Um, I'm Justine Rothwell, and like Gemma said, um, I've spent the last 20 years involved in research in self-harm. I then moved out of being a research associate, and I trained as a CBT therapist. And I'm now a senior psychological um, therapist in a um, private children's home um, provider called Meadows Care. And we're quite specialist as we have got an integrated therapy team, multidisciplinary team with art therapists, drama therapists, nurses, family therapists, um, dance therapists. Um, and I'm um, lead on the complex risk pathway. So I am involved in um, supporting um, the staff in understanding self-harm and delivering the training um, in our service. And we do that with an expert by experience as well. Great. Thanks, Justine. And um, finally, Alison. Hello, uh, my name's Alison Wood. I'm a CAMS consultant and I've worked in outpatient CAMS and in inpatient units. I've specialised in uh, self-harm and depression and eating disorders. And my current role is within a community eating disorder team. Um, I've worked with Gemma and Justine over a long period of time, as Gemma has summarised, both clinically and in research. And we were really pleased to be invited to create the e-learning module focusing on self-harming in adolescence. Um, self-harming is really common and um, it's an absolutely fascinating um, topic. So we've finished the first module and it's good to have an opportunity to talk about it because we all bring different perspectives um, to that discussion, I think. So thank you very much for inviting us. Yeah, thank you. It's great to have all three of you here. Let's start off then. I think, Gemma, you were going yeah. to start us off. Um, and I might ask you, how big a problem is self-harm in young people, in your opinion? Yeah, and I'm sure we don't know the true effects of the COVID-19, but I get. I think sort of the immediate thing is that people are aware that that's having a big effect on university students, actually, and uh, school children around and self-harm is becoming quite prominent as as is other mental health problems 
In terms of the statistics around how big the problem is, well, that's a constantly changing sort of footprint. So, but having said that, it has been increasing since the 1960s. There has been an increase year on year nearly that uh, self-harm is now the rates are one in 10 young people. And that's from the Children's Society and one in 10 young people self-harm, which is a substantial amount of youngsters. The majority are often girls aged about 13 to 15. And here in the UK, we've got the highest rates in Europe. And there's lots of thoughts about what that is. Is it because we're a Western society? Is it the growth of the Internet? All these different sort of theories. Nothing is actually factual. We don't know what why that is. But certainly we have uh, very unhappy young people. And uh, some of the issue is about defining and understanding what self-harm is. But for the purpose of this e-learning module, we're talking about young people who uh, cut, overdose, that type of thing. We're not referring to youngsters who've got eating problems, which is more a different type of self-harm in terms of the damages and indirect sort of, so the damage is done over time. We're talking about direct self-harm, so hanging, you know, youngsters cutting, burning, that type of thing. Um, in terms of uh, the statistics will constantly change and I'd be interested to know what happens around this COVID fallout. And, and I'm sure this is a difficult question. I'm sure it varies. But what are the main reasons why young people do self-harm? Yeah, because I guess uh, self-harm, it's very difficult because self-harm is not really an illness as such or a condition. And the course post self-harm attempt is very unpredictable. You know, you don't you can't just say, oh, that person's going to self-harm and then they're going to have come out in spots or do something. You know what I mean? There's not a, a course and it's very much about how we as clinicians respond. And I'm sure Jen, you'll remember those days of coming into the local A&E department to see a young person and you, when you feel like they've just arrived from Mars and you don't know what to do. So the whole uh, issue is around equipping people to get them to ask the young person about what their self-harm is about. So for some young people, it's a, a communication of sort of unmet need that there's sort of like there's, it's a way of coping with life as opposed to wanting to be dead. You know, it's a sort of for each young person, it's a self-harm is different than suicide in terms of it's about it's where you purposely hurt yourself. But the intention isn't about wanting to be dead. So the most common reason I think there's a guy who everybody would have known, known in um, psychiatry is uh, Professor Horton. He did a schema around looking at the reasons young people self-harm. And the most common reason that the youngsters gave was to give a to escape or to give a relief from a terrible state of mind. And certainly for my money, that's definitely one of the big things that somehow the child just wants to switch off their head, just wants some sort of. And in a way, it's, it's a, a bit sort of ironic in a sense because it causes they feel a lot calmer sometimes after they have self-harmed. And some young people like where Justin works, perhaps, you know, children would looked after children. It is sometimes a disassociation. And it's, you know, if the youngsters had sexual abuse and, or other adverse childhood experiences, then they might self-harm for a different reason as a way of punishing themselves or blaming themselves. So I guess it is. And I think that's why this has been uniquely interesting topic, because there isn't one known reason as to why somebody might self-harm. Some young people might have comorbid mental health conditions, so they might have uh, self-harm because they're suffering from depression. They might have emotional and unstable personality disorder, and they might use it as a way of self-regulating. But as you can see, and as you'll find out from when you do your the e-learning package, it's a very unique thing for the young person. So 
and the intention can vary. So you might cut as a way of coping with life. You might want to you know, take tablets as a way of ending your life. So the most key thing is to ask the young person themselves. And I think that's where clinicians really struggle. It's the fear that they might do harm by asking, that they might make things worse. And a lot of when I've asked, you know, like student nurses, people like that, they're just terrified. You know, pediatric nurses spend a substantial amount of time working with those young people. And if you ask them, you know, and they are scared, they're scared that if they ask them, what was your intention, that they might go and kill themselves. The same in schools. If you talk to education, they're absolutely petrified of going anywhere near it. When really it is actually important to ascertain what exactly the young person is meaning, what was their intention, why are they self-harming, are they doing it as a way of coping, or are they doing it as a way of ending their life, that type of thing. Yeah, but, but equally, I think it can mean something different for that young person at different times as well. So, yeah. um, um, so sort of clinicians need to understand that as well. And also, sometimes a young person doesn't know why they did it, and that can be frustrating if somebody pushes them a lot um, around that. And the reason they might have started self-harming, which is what I have to say to some of the families, you know, the reason they might have done it because of a bereavement or there might have been a reaction to like a reactive thing. But the reasons it's maintained can be totally different. So mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? They might. Yeah. And there's a, it's very addictive for some young people. It can be habit, habit forming, that type of thing. So I really agree with that. And I think it is a very complex problem and understanding the moment for the young person is what we try and do in our assessments. And uh, I think thinking about the means, the motivation, uh, we all worked with um, a psychotherapist quite a long time ago who talked about a moment of madness. And that's what you need to try and understand for the young person that you're talking to in that moment and recognise that it's going to be different and it's going to be different, like Justine says, um, the, the different times that they self-harm. Um, so it's not a diagnosis, it's not a medical disorder, it's a symptom of an underlying problem. And taking um, a biopsychosocial approach to formulating that problem is really, really important um, for the young person in their context with their family. And I suppose that's what we try to get across in the module to help trainees, because often, like Gemma said, their first line for assessing these situations in the middle of the night when they've hardly done any CAMS training or, or um, you know, they don't have very much experience. So it's just trying to understand that behaviour in that context and think about how to uh, protect the young person and move forward with them and their family. Thanks, Alison. Um, Gemma, you mentioned suicide as well, and I was wondering if you could say a bit about the relationship between self-harm and suicide in young people. Yeah, absolutely, because I think that's where the anxiety comes from. So a lot of people perceive, well, if that young person is cutting themselves, oh, my God, they must want to end their life. That's your automatic thought. So when you're going in, you think, oh, my God, no wonder you're kind of anxious. And, you know, but really what we do is we kind of look at it as, as a continuum so that some people, young people in their lives might have a fleeting idea about wanting to. So a suicidal, fairly high suicidal ideation. They might never act out on it and they might never do anything about it. So that's at one end of the continuum. Then there's other young people who might cut as a way of coping. 
There might be another young person who attempts suicide because they're ambivalent about wanting to be dead or alive. Then you might get somebody who's attempted a hanging. And then you get at the very far extreme is a completed suicide. And I guess because, and we're going to talk about risk and protective factors, but because they're very similar, the risks and the protective factors for self-harm are very similar to that of suicide. In fact, I think in suicide, nobody completely gets to know why that young person ended their lives. So we have to do a lot of thinking about what is the highest risk factor for, for a young person committing suicide, and self-harm is certainly up there. So self-harm is one of the biggest risk factors for a youngster to complete suicide compared to somebody who never entered that continuum in the first instance. So that's why, you know, understanding the nature of their self-harm is a very key to the risk assessment, which is what this uh, module is actually focusing on. So self-harm and suicide are often used interchangeably, which isn't helpful, although there is a link. But, you know, they are two very distinct sort of acts with two very different endpoints. So it's about trying to disentangle that whole uh, web of whatever. It's quite hard to disentangle, you know, what is that? A, is that a self-harm as a way of coping or is that a way of did they want to be dead? And that is what causes the absolute confusion. It's not a clear answer. And as I said before, the, you know, it's very unpredictable of how things will go for that young person. So all the research looks at suicide and self-harm. In fact, I think well, that's the reason that us guys all got together is we've been working within a group treatment program for young people, which intuitively we really think helps. But when you look at it and try and sort of look at it in a very sort of uh, objective research type way, it's very difficult to say, you know, about what kind of things are within that a treatment, individual treatment or group treatment, what helps and what doesn't help. So I guess for us, it's about the problem with the research is that so somebody who's self-harming fairly regularly on a regular, but might be very, have low suicidal intent is actually categorized along with somebody who's only done one episode of a very serious attempt. And I think that's why this is the whole thing is very muddled because as somebody who's cutting maybe a hundred times, so that would, they would score on the research as cutting a lot. And then somebody who actually does a very serious thing would score only very low. So I think it's very hard for clinicians, it's very hard for research, to, and I guess that's why most of the research has actually come up. You know, we've, there's been some fairly major randomized controlled trials around this treatment with very little sort of effect, you know, absolute effect. So again, it's about the unpredictable nature of why a young person self-harms. So because we don't know, the most important thing to ascertain in the assessment is the young person's intention. What was their intention of that act? And it's okay to say, did you want to be dead? You know, how do you feel this morning? How do you feel, you know, how do you feel about this? And I think that's a very hard question to ask, isn't it? It's very difficult for clinicians to ascertain exactly what their self-harm is about. But, you know, but was it self-harm as a way of not wanting to be dead? Or was it that you wanted to end your life? I mean, one good question I always ask for a young person is, okay, so what would stop you from a self-harming or wanting to end your life? What would actually stop you from doing that? And that gives you a, a lot of clues as to what the young, because a lot of young people will say, oh, I wouldn't do that to my family. I couldn't do that. You know, like, oh, great. <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? You have to kind of disentangle what it is for them, get them to describe it in their own words, get them to kind of talk about and not, and not being scared to talk about. Because, I mean, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Seeing somebody, I think as a 
clinicians, because we're used to fixing things for young people, we're used to somebody's got a broken leg, take them in, get them fixed, put them on a cast. But with this, you can't just fix it. And I think we, we've all said that it's a, sometimes about stepping back and not and re- recognizing you can't fix it. So actually okay. taking a step back and saying, you know, there isn't, you know, there isn't an absolute a treatment or thing that we can do. There's certain things, you know, there's certain good practices and certainly, you know, there's been lots of um, evidence of very good practice in terms of, I think, Tendis Algren, who's one of your the psychiatrist, has done a very interesting study around looking at the therapeutic assessment and about engaging the young people. And I think for us, you've lost a young person. You know, you've lost a young person if you can't engage with them at the outset. And also to make sure that you're kind of getting it right, we would always ask the parents, what do you think it's about? You know, how long has it been going on for? What do you think? Do you think your daughter did want to be dead? I would say more than anything, I would always involve the parents in the uh, assessment to look at what their viewpoint is. Because sometimes you can see they're both coming from very different angles. And uh, I guess, you know, it's about disentangling all of that and recognising that suicide is different. Completed suicide is a different endpoint with a different motivation and self-harm can often be a way of living a life whether it's people view it as maladaptive or not young people find it's very very effective at helping them manage their emotions and sometimes they don't feel they want to stop as well that's the other thing i don't know what you guys think yeah i think what you said is really key about starting the therapeutic um sort of process um through the assessment um and i think in our research we had very very high um follow-up rates um, and I think it was because we were able to give the young people in the research space without giving a sort of creating demands um, just to talk about self-harm and talk about their feelings um, sort of without wanting to fix it. So I would be at young people's homes for three hours um, and sort of completing assessments. Um, and we we had over 90 percent follow up rates um, a year on in, in the group intervention study. So I guess therapeutic alliance is probably a thing that yeah. we probably would like to look at. And, uh, you know, clearly whatever components and it's, uh, it's probably a bit old fashioned, but it looks like person centered type approaches, having empathy, having all those compassion, all those things are actually, which I have to say, we intuitively thought that was the case because our initial uh, research trial was very successful at reducing repetition of self-harm. And, you know, we were wondering you know, how that came about. And maybe that's because we had a team of people that were kind of a less anxious about talking to young people. But certainly, I think being anxious, the child will pick up on that straight away. You know, so it's, you know, if there's one in 10 young people self-harming, you can't be anxious going into the clinical arena. You have to think, OK, let's and my role now is to find out what this is about. I'm not going to get, oh, my God, you know, and freak out, which is why the, I don't know if you uh, are aware, Jen, of the future in mind, the ambitions of future in mind. That's about the CAMS and transforming CAMS, because currently CAMS is not fit for purpose. I'm sure you've heard lots of people say that. Only about 25% of the young people are able to access it in the first instance. And so a lot of youngsters aren't getting any treatment. And the people who do get treatment, you know, there's some young people who get uh, who get admitted to tier four services so they get the highest amount of treatment but that's a very small amount of young people and it's sometimes very unhelpful it's not the right thing because you will find that i'm sure justin will be able to say more about that but it looked after children or residential settings there is a big issue around imitation and contagion 
yeah. be careful in supporting matching with our young people um, when another young person comes into the home. We would um, sort of never or try not to have um, a young person who self-arms um, in the home with them because of contagion. Yeah. And I mean, for some young people, it's an excellent thing to do. And certainly on a short term management of the acute suicidal crisis. But we have a, we often get youngsters who have multiple problems within inpatient. Myself and Alison worked for many years in uh, tier four CAMs. And, you know, as well as it had been a very good thing, you have to balance that with actually could this be detrimental to the, that young person. So everybody wants the problem to go away. They want that young person off their patch or off there in the A&E department and straight onto an inpatient unit. They obviously must be crazy. You know, it's a terrible thing because that's not the case. And to therapeutic risk taking is very important, but very hard to orchestrate in, in a community setting and when in an acute crisis. Hard at that, Gemma. So we've got um, really close relationships with um, sort of local CAM services because we, we would um, prefer not for our young people to go into an inpatient setting. And the inpatient setting sort of would prefer for our young people not to be there. So we have very tight risk management plans. If our young people present um, at A&E, um, the, the, the sort of um, clinician on call can open up the notes and see that there's enough support back in the home to, to immediately discharge and not even put them on uh, um, on the ward for a short space of time. Um, sort of, um, they know that they're confident in knowing that our staff are trained and understand the self-harm and can manage it better than the inpatient ward. Exactly. And I think, you know, CAMs going up to 24 hours, eventually it will be 24 hours a day. So it isn't, say, a naive person who's having to come along and do an assessment of something that's very complex. So that, you know, that people will become more confident about, you know, making those decisions. And certainly all young people should have a safety plan. I mean, this will probably, we'll talk more about this in our second e-learning. We talk a lot about safety planning. And, you know, a sort of mutual safety planning that's shared across with the multidisciplinary team, with the young person, with their family, with whoever is involved, the school. So, you know, kind of, I think containing, containment is key, I think, to, if I think think of one word, it's about containing a situation that, A, seems out of control, but it's not. And if you go in viewing it, this is out of control. You're not, you're on a, as they say in Ireland, you're on a beaten docket. You're not able to, you're not able to respond in the right way. So I think, you know, as psychiatrists, this is why we feel very passionate about this module. You need to get those kind of skills, get that confidence around, you know, if it's a big problem like this, you know, we can't get twitched about it. A very small amount who have actually meant to, wanted to end their life as part of that process on that continuum but the you know, majority of young people are doing it as a way of living their life living a life that perhaps is very complex and clearly it's a communication of unmet need for the young person so what we would do is try and look at what is what is what is their unmet need so for somebody like Justine if a young person comes in and they don't have a home to go with to live in then that becomes a priority so that young person needs a home. They need somewhere to live. Forget about all the rest. You know, they can't just live in a psychiatric hospital. They need a place to live. They need somewhere to live. They need some sort of stability. They need some safety. All those very basic hierarchical Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you haven't got a home, you need to find the young person somewhere to live that is going to be suitably adequate at managing, you know, and I guess somewhere like where Justine's talking about, where she works, you know, where you have a sort of therapeutic uh, residential home. It's just that some residential homes don't have 
as much access to therapies. But, you know, the young person. So depending on what they need, if they've got issues with their relationship, then that needs to be sorted. If it's about school and we find there's a massive increase in young people around, you know, GCSEs, around exam times, we see a massive uh, increase in referrals. So Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day, yeah. (laughs) Anniversaries, you know, anniversaries, that type of thing. I was just um, wanting to sort of reflect a little bit on the role of the psychiatrist and um, how it's really important to work within a multidisciplinary team perspective. And the three of us have all got different professional backgrounds. And as a psychiatrist, um, uh, whether you're a trainee or a consultant, uh, it's important that you feel confident and competent in making a robust assessment. And I think that's what just bring to the table. So Gemma's talked very um, eloquently about the complexity of risk because there's um, the, the lethality of the behaviour. Um, and sometimes that is not um, in keeping with the intention of the behaviour. Then there's the frequency of the behaviour. Sometimes um, the, the patients that present very regularly and frequently with low level or moderate level self-harming are the most difficult to manage. But we know that of patients who complete suicide, um, multiple self-harming is a significant uh, risk factor. So as a psychiatrist, it's really important to look for underlying mental health problems and to diagnose depression, emotionally unstable personality disorder, PTSD. Um, Any mental health problem can feature self-harming pretty much. Um, And that's what the team require of you. Um, But to remember that um, self-harming is is not itself a medical disorder and um, medicalizing it by prescribing um, uh, for it as opposed to for an underlying uh, problem can be quite difficult and give um, difficult messages to the team. Um, So I think it's quite challenging to work um, within a team. And as a trainee, it's really important that you get good supervision and that you've got backup when you're on call, because these cases are very, very anxiety provoking. And as Gemma said, if if the stops, that's really going to be difficult for, for, for containing the patient um, because there's a huge amount of anxiety. And, and in CAMS, it's very often the parents that are hugely, hugely anxious and expect something to be done, expect something to be fixed. And if they haven't come across it before for their child, they think that their child should be immediately hospitalised and, you know, treated with very intensive uh, treatment. So there's a huge... Um, sort of learning curve and a lot of psychoeducation to cover in actually that assessment process. And I think Gemma's also, um, and Justine have mentioned the therapeutic nature of assessment because it's not, it's, it's about treatment as well. It's just, it's not just purely an assessment. It's an engagement process. And, you know, Dennis Ugrin has actually done some, uh, very, uh, interesting research demonstrating that regarding it as a therapeutic assessment is is really helpful because some patients if they have a really good assessment that they can engage in will stop self-harming and will be able to keep themselves safe and work with their families and may not need any further intervention so it's a it's a fascinating area and there's loads to say we're all talking a lot (laughs) so it's difficult to keep us on track (laughs) 
Alison, I was quite interested by what you're saying about the risk of over-medicalising self-harm and also managing the anxiety of parents and how parents might interpret the whole assessment that takes place in A&E. And what kind of sticks out in my mind is, is the idea of giving a kind of safety plan, um, asking people to hide sharp items in the house. Um, and I wondered if you had any thoughts on on that, on how to, to manage that anxiety of the family. Well, I think that it starts the moment you meet the patient and the young person, doesn't it? And, you know, the way that you introduce yourself, the way that you describe your role and the way that you conduct the assessment is is going to be um, gaining their confidence that, you know, you know what you're doing. You're there to help their young person. You're there to keep them safe, to prevent them killing themselves um, but that you know there isn't a treatment or a single thing that is going to take this away and that you can't sort it out for them you know you have to be um, a, a method of helping them learn how to sort it out and for their young person to learn how to cope and manage the problems in a way that's not just going to happen um, you know in a couple of hours it's going to be an ongoing process and I think the importance of, of psychoeducation, it can't be underestimated, really. And there's so much available online. I mean, we're going to talk later about, um, you know, the Internet and online activity. But there's huge amounts of positives in terms of information that young people can access online, connection with other young people. And making that effective is part of what we need to try and do as professionals, guiding people and helping them risk assess uh, online activity is really, really important. I think a key um, experience for young people in that moment of despair is feeling they don't fit in, feeling disconnected. They're not they're not effective. They're not they're not right as a person and nobody cares for them. You know, that moment of, of disconnection and aloneness. And the Internet is actually really brilliant at helping that. So we have to ensure that they connect with healthy things on the Internet and that that, that can be supported uh, by their parents and other people in their system, um, schools, um, you know, volunteers, um, all kinds of um, support which can help them connect with a life worth living and a, and a healthy way of behaving and operating. So it's it's a process, you know, it's a journey, isn't it, rather than a, a single thing. Um, but it does start with that assessment in casualty for some young people. And if that goes wrong, it's actually quite difficult to undo it. You know, if they go out of casualty feeling anxious, like what's going to happen? I'm just waiting for an appointment and the appointment doesn't come, then they're going to go back, aren't they? And they're going to keep going back until they've got some answers that make sense to them. And they've got a plan that they can sort of work through with the young people. Um, you mentioned the use of the Internet there and, and positive aspects of the Internet. Um, and this, I know, has been in the media and things about social media and possible increase in in self-harm in young people. I wondered if any of you wanted to talk a bit about that. I think there's been a sort of a, a massive increase in, over the last 10 years on looking at the internet use in terms of the variety, you know, across the spectrum of mental health problems. Looking towards the internet, for whether it's harmful or helpful, 
and it's obviously it's both of those things. And certainly, uh, I don't know if anybody remembers about Molly Russell, the young girl who, age 14, who, well, she she was a very tragic situation of a youngster who hung herself in her bedroom, and her father, Aid Russell, has done quite a lot of work now around raising the awareness. And I think there's now the uh, Department of Health are looking at uh, online harm. There's lots of sort of uh, documentation, lots of guidance around uh, the use of the Internet. I mean, he firmly believed that the Internet had actually contributed to his daughter's death. And he was he's been adamant. I think he's sort of he's gone to the Internet giants, you know, the big Internet giants around, you know, this is not this is not right. If it was sort of child pornography, you put a stop to it. You know, children are accessing some fairly gruesome sites. And I think even after she passed, a lot of people are still writing to her saying they wanted to end her life. So you can see that there is a serious, uh, and particularly in the dark web, there's certainly a serious amount of uh, disturbing images. And uh, Keith Houghton again and Amanda Marchant, they did a study around looking at the harmful, they did a big systematic review, I think it was about but three or four years ago, they did a big systematic review looking at, you know, that sort of balance between harmful and helpful. And like Alison says, the Internet's here to stay and it has both of those things. So some young people uh, go to the Internet to look for support and it stops them feeling isolated. And other, you know, that they feel really connected to somebody and that's really helpful. There's lots of therapies delivered online, which, again, can be very helpful. But other young people, and I think the study more or less looked at all of those effects, and it, but it also uh, looked, uh, sort of identified that youngsters who were viewing very sort of gross images of self-harm were much more at risk, you know, and I guess sharing their, their cuts and their, and I think certainly for Molly Russell that was the case, and uh, I think now the uh, internet giants have kind of recognised that you have to do some sort of uh, moderation around sites. So I think even though people fairly quickly and most of the 13-year-olds have been able to show me how you could actually just ignore that. So it says if, you know, like if you key in self-harm or something like that, it says don't go any further if you're at risk type thing. Do you, do you know what I mean? So there's like a moderation thing goes on. But prior to that, there was nothing. And there's lots of sort of campaigns around should it be criminalized and all this sort of thing. But the most important thing for clinicians is to recognize that you have to ask the question. And uh, Alison will talk a little bit because she's been involved in I've done a couple of papers around internet use, you know, but there is ways of um, asking that question. So it's about how they use the internet more than are you on the internet? Because as we know, every single child in the UK is on the internet and it's private school children. But do you know what I mean? It's like about asking how, what, what are you on the internet for? What is your motivation for going on the internet? Are you on the internet because you want to find a person that might help you with your problems? Or are you on the internet because you want to sort of identify or you want sort of normalization around yourself on uh, and you want to share things and share experiences? And it's the same for anorexia. There's lots of pro sites. And so I guess, and I know Alice has done a lot more work on that, but certainly something we wanted to do in terms of our research was to look at developing a tool around being able to do a risk assessment around a young person's internet use. What, Alison, do you, because you, I know you've been involved, haven't you, in developing a questionnaire? Yeah, I mean, we, we want clinicians to always ask young people about their use of the internet, but we recognise that it's a secret activity. <laughs> and even though a parents put 
controls on the phone. It, it's really, really difficult to interrogate the young person on what their um, online activity looks like. And particularly in eating disorders, um, the, there's a, a toxic aspect to social comparison, preoccupation with weight, shape, appearance, and developing a, a, an idealised sense of what people should look like and behave like. And it's really difficult for particularly young adolescents to be exposed to that in a, a huge way in private. Um, so we're, we're trying to design a questionnaire which is um, uh, an opportunity to ask um, uh, teenagers about their use of um, the Internet, ranging from how much time they spend on the Internet, um, their use of social media, what platforms they use and how it makes them feel, um, how it relates to um, real life social activity, uh, because many people, many young people exclusively socialise online um, and Thirdly, all the other uses of the Internet, ranging from YouTube to blogs and recovery journeys and um, so on. So uh, we would we would urge, you know, clinicians when they're doing initial assessment to ask the questions. It may be that the young person be quite guarded about ask, answering, but that it's important to, you know, give information and um, enable parents to try and uh, modulate or help their young person share anything that they're experiencing uh, online. And like Gemma says, it's absolutely exploded and there's a lot more information uh, to read and people are, are starting to research the, the issues and the core problems. So it's quite exciting from that point of view. And the Royal College of Psychiatrists have um, released a, a position statement, which is very useful because it has some guidance for parents um, and young people regarding some kind of simple ground rules um, in terms of, of risk, you know, sharing photos and uh, confidentiality and criminal activity and things. So, because yeah, really important. Because I, I work with a particularly vulnerable group and we incorporate in our um, all our assessments, risk assessments and our risk management plans. Um, and we have contracts around phones. We're able to implement contracts with our young people. So the spot checks on phones and we've got um, additional sort of um, layers of technology. We have this mesh that we can actually um, see um, the Internet searches that our young people go on. But equally, we focus on how they can how it can be positive as well. Our young people um, tend to have um, sort of um, poor friendship groups or, or not many friends at all. So we can see the benefits of them um, being part of a community where they feel they belong and they can get a lot of positive um, um, from that. Because um, for some of our um, um, sort of um, young men especially, um, um, the gaming and the and social media is the only interaction they have um, with, with others um, because of many of the restrictions that are placed sort of on them um, living with us. So it's very challenging within you know kind of residential settings and inpatient settings um, to manage you know mobile phone use and uh, so on. It should be easy, but it's generally not. <laughs> And yeah, we have consultations with um, sort of higher tech people um, because we work with HSB as well, especially. So they're very sort of sophisticated at overriding a lot of a lot of um, uh, the um, restrictions put in place. So yeah. so yeah, positives and negatives there to social media and the internet. I would look at this question is to everyone really. Um, I don't know who's best place to answer it. But I was wondering what the longer term outcomes are for young people who 
self-harm? I mean, in, it depends. <laughs> That's the answer to everything, isn't it? I mean, it, the three of us were involved in a multi-centred trial uh, that Gemma's already mentioned, it's called the ASSIST trial, where we compared uh, young people attending a um, group treatment programme in, in together with treatment as usual versus treatment as usual and we followed the young people up for 12 months and we had a really good um, rate of follow-up and over the course of the study all patients um, with the exception of a very small number um, improved in their frequency of self-harming and the overall um sort of functioning of the of the patients in the study improved there wasn't any difference statistically significant anyway between the two arms of the study but i think that um there's a view well there used to be a view that it was quite poor prognosis and it, it kind of wouldn't get very much better but our clinical findings have been the opposite really it's it's treatable and um, people generally uh don't kill themselves Obviously, risk assessment is something we focused on. Um, and, you know, most people can be helped. Um, and identifying the, f- the, the small percentage of patients who have got an emergent emotionally unstable personality disorder is a, is an important thing to be positive about. Um, because as Gemma said, nobody finds it easy to see these patients. Nobody really wants them and their experiences of being um, you know, sort of referred around and trying to find help is is quite hard for them. And we know that they are not um, best managed in hospitals um, and they need um, long term help in the community. Um, and our second um, e-learning module is going to focus a bit more on treatment options so I guess it's about the young person is that some young people might self-harm because of a reaction to a problem. And it might be a very short-lived experience, whereas other young people might have a variety of adverse childhood experiences and they would have a poorer prognosis. So it's very sort of dependent on the young person's on why they're self-harming and, and why they're doing it. You know, if they're doing it because they are ambivalent, which often young people with emotional and unstable personality disorder might be very ambivalent at times about whether they want to live or die, then you're on a knife edge with that. And that's why that type of young person is quite a difficult to manage. It's quite a challenge, you know, but I guess, you know, they, the most important thing for them is to feel valued, you know, and I think young people will describe a lot about their experiences of going into A&E and being met with stigma and sort of really sort of, discriminatory type practices where people will say well you did that to yourself so we're not going to actually treat you or they will you know there's lots of sort of uh, personal sort of testimonies from young people about people having a very bad attitude towards their self-harm which makes things a lot worse so again like you would do with any other client they are legitimate users of services uh, contrary to what people think and they are should be treated young people should be treated with respect dignity you know people should it's still a sort of thing of a sort of feeling of hope that you know don't worry you know this that's something to you know the, you know hopefully we have spent many years working with young people and the majority of young people do do well and it's it's sometimes a crisis of their adolescence 
because adolescence brings with it, as we know, lots of sort of issues around negotiating adulthood and lots of young people struggle in those age ranges because the if the majority of young people presenting are those aged 13 to 15, it's predominantly an adolescent phenomena. And I mean, obviously, some young people will go on with a trajectory into their adult life to continue to self-harm. And, you know, that can be and then it gets it can get very severe and very sort of like they might have a lot of co-existing problems, comorbid uh, illnesses. But mostly a young person, it might be a reaction to a situation where they just wanted to switch their head off. And fairly quickly that will resolve and they will not necessarily go on to need ongoing treatment and they move on in their to their adult life. Much the same way as with, you know, anybody's sort of uh, experience of any mental health illnesses. But one of the very frightening things I think is that came more recently is that uh, if 50 percent of all major mental health illnesses is diagnosable by the age of 14. So that is why young people and a further 25 percent. So 75 percent excluding dementia is diagnosable in their early 20s. So it's very important to sort of negotiate that with a young person, you know, help them develop through their problems, help them negotiate the task of growing up. And I guess, you know, particularly around this COVID, you know, there's going to be a lot of very anxious and unhopeful young people. And we, it's our role to, to kind of support them, guide them, instill some hope, things like that. But for I'm sure for this time, like youngsters going to university, not seeing their tutors, all of that, it will result in an increase of self-harming behaviour. And that's something that we're looking at at Liverpool University at looking at children. And I think I don't, I'm, I'm intrigued what Justin would think to this. But I suppose what I would like to impart is that I've noticed that young people who have more adverse childhood experiences have poorer outcomes overall. So if you've been abused, if you've been neglected, if you've got you lived in a sort of low social economic, all those kind of adverse childhood abusive relationships, all of those, would be, I would say, would predict your outcome. I don't know, what do you think, Justine? Oh, yes. Most of our, or every of our young people have got five or more um, ACEs. Um, and obviously sort of struggle in education settings, um, sort of are involved in the youth offending services. And then when they leave us, um, we, we have a number of young people for sort of um, three or more years. However, then the services let when they leave us. So 16 plus, there isn't the support there for them. Um, and then um, they're living again in isolation and it increases the races if you've managed to sort of um, put some protective factors in place. I, I was just going to sort of reflect, Gemma and Justine, that I think it's uh, self-harm is often a communication. And for the, for the small percentage of young people who persist in self-harming, um, it's very important to understand the communication and try and ensure that the management of the self-harming isn't contributing to um, maintaining the problem. And it's very easy to get in that situation with absolutely no intention to do so. And um, it's particularly the case in, in residential settings. Um, and it's, it's, it's almost impossible to avoid it. But, you know, really sort of looking at it as a behaviour and doing a, a kind of a, you know, drilling into the behaviour, looking at what the antecedents are, what the setting conditions are, and how everybody around the young person is responding, um, can be required in order to try and uh, enable the, the young person not to continue to communicate using that behaviour. 
Uh, yeah, because I mean, um, sort of when Gemma mentioned about um, sort of the attitudes in the A&E um, to, to young people, yeah. I think there has been a significant shift. And we've been mindful sometimes that our young people have been attending because of the positive the attention that they get um, when they're on the children's ward. It's a change of face. It's people have been really nurturing, responsive. Um, one of my young people was sat in the century room eating toast, loads of new audience telling us tales, a therapy dog appeared. Um, so for high young person that then was the motivation to keep going back onto the uh, to presenting to A&E so we had to quickly work that um sort of understand that and then have a tight risk management plan that she never went onto the children's ward and she came back home also wi-fi in hospitals so some of our young people have got restricted wi-fi and then they started having wi-fi in waiting rooms of A&E so they would then present at A&E because they got wi-fi as well so it's always trying to unpick all these little things that can sort of um, influence um, a young person to um, sort of present and then how we manage that so and I think as, as professionals I kind of think there's like you know it causes a, a polarization for any staff team so you get people who think well they're just doing it for attention and you get people who think who feel very sorry for the young person and who want to sort of nurture them and cocoon them and stuff like that neither of which are right actually so you know they're both neither no, none of those extremes are right you know, it is absolutely inappropriate to tell the child they're attention seeking and it's t- inappropriate to closet them and not let them live in a normal life just because they're self-harming and that you protect them from, or you go on eggshells around them. So it's somewhere in the middle. And I think uh, that's uh, Marshall Linehan's work with DBT, which again, will come into the second module, is, uh, you know, it talks a lot about taking that middle path. So neither being completely having an exclusive relationship where you're the only person that can help that young person or having a very negative relationship where you you just feel that they're you know wasted time wasters and you get lots of these extreme views from people and that's because you know neither of those are right it's about being very professional with the young person being very honest when you ask a young person what do you want from me and they want absolute honesty and and so at the outset saying i don't know how this is going to go you know self-harm doesn't have a uh, predictable course post episode so but it very much depends on how you engage with me in terms of your therapy and how we can develop a plan that'll keep you safe and it all involves sort of some sort of mutuality because if you're constantly the only person responsible for that child's safety you will very quickly burn out and you would want to have be like that so it's about saying to the young person you are part of the solution you and your family are part of the solution I'm here to help negotiate that. You know, I can't, you know, be responsible completely and utterly, unless you're in a secure unit, for, you know, maintaining your safety. I need you to work with me and really imploring to, you know, and pleading with the young person about the need for them to work alongside you around keeping themselves safe. You know, obviously for some young people, that's, they're not in a place where they would even agree to that type of thing. And that's when you do have to then be more, uh, sort of obviously restrictive in times and put them into uh, ask them to go to hospital where they can be looked after 24 hours a day that does have to happen in some instances but generally speaking the most of the work done with self-harm is a community type approach and that is right and keeping the young person in their school keeping them with their friends if possible all of those and it's a bit like with any mental health illness it's about looking after that child in the least restrictive environment and trying to keep them within their home because once you get excluded I think Alison talked fairly uh, a lot about that kind of feeling disconnected all of those things you know a child if they're taken away from their home they're, they're going to lose contact with their friends and all of that 
has an effect on the outcome post episode for the young person. So it's about trying to keep the youngster, uh, you know, feeling connected in their community. And that is why, again, with Future Minds, all there's a big emphasis around taking CAMs into schools. So that yeah. you know, the head teacher doesn't say, right, she's self-arming, she's got to go. Oh, she's got an eating disorder. She has to. It's about saying, well, she has that, but she also is entitled to have education and she needs to, if at all possible, we will give support with it. So the ambition is to give support and there's going to be teams of staff working, uh, you know, children who've got the, uh, working with children in schools. So there's going to be the IAPT program. Uh, their ambition is to get a team of uh, that every single school in the country. I mean, obviously, COVID will have had its effect, but every single school in the country will have a CAMS team, and they will there will be a senior uh, designated lead for CAMS, perhaps across five schools, where people who are emotional well-being practitioners will work with the youngster. And you can see how all these, uh, for the, you know, CAMS has been disinvested for many years. There's been a disinvestment in CAMS. You know, uh, these tier three services were just asked to take on 16 to 18 year olds all of a sudden without any more staff. You know, there's, it's a, it's not, it's, it's a quite a difficult world out there. And I think instead of people accessing the higher tiers and being in hospital, there needs to be a community type. There needs to be outreach. There needs to be inreach into schools. There needs to be day services, clinics that are providing long term input. Because I think it's very important to say that with a child who self harms, it's not going to be a quick fix. You know, often it is a very long term input from a community type setting as it would be for eating disorders. So recognizing that the problems might not just dissipate fairly quickly and that you, have, you know, you might have to at least, and I'm sure the last nice guidance talked about, you know, only seeing your person if you can offer three months as a starting point, looking at, you know, people with long term problems offering them three months instead of what's been around to kind of stop the, you know, the sort of needs for CAMS. There's been lots of very brief interventions and sometimes that will work for some young people. And certainly the therapeutic assessment is a really good way of uh, engaging the youngster, spending a lot more longer time understanding them and getting them to commit to a short term Mm -hmm. treatment. But generally speaking, for youngsters who repeatedly self-harm, they will require long term treatment approaches. It's listening to what the young people want, isn't it? So in my last research um, study, which was an IHR-funded IHR, um, trial looking at family therapy as an intervention for self-harm shift, and we did um, some qualitative questions at the end asking what young people wanted. And they wanted where they could have a drop-in and they could, after a, a difficult day, they could just go somewhere, talk it through, um, be listened to, be understood. They didn't want a formal appointment two weeks later um, when nobody actually asked them, did it fit with their day? Um, um, sort of, um, um, yeah, and they would have would uh, find it really helpful to have somebody in school they could talk to. But like Gemma said, a lot of um, education staff, um, um, sort of, it increases their anxiety talking about self-harm. So they get shut down or dismissed, um, and that's not that helpful for them. And I, I guess what we've learned is that it requires a sort of multimodal approach to... So some young people will need individual treatment, and certainly all young people will get an individual treatment. Others will get maybe a group treatment, if you have that in your service. Others will get family therapy. But, and, you know, but mostly it's a mixture of all of those. Some people might need psychopharmacological treatments. And again, it's about recognising... You have to be creative around 
what that child's needs are and you have to develop you have to tailor your plan to their needs rather than you know just saying all oh, right cbt is the answer for that young person you know it's a, not you know for some young people it's different things and it might be more person-centered types approaches supportive constantly sorry jen i know you're going to talk then i mean i think Gemma, that's really hard for our staff to understand because they have to get the heads around that it's unique it means something different to the to each young person so they've all got individualized risk management plans individualized safety plans um, and they all sort of uh, each day need a different strategy to support them. Um, and the staff will say, well, I used that strategy last week and it worked, but it hasn't worked this week with them or supported them in that way. And, and it's constantly. We do lots of formulation um, sort of driven work with our staff and loads of understanding um, about the self-harm just so they can get their heads around that, really. Did anyone have any kind of burning sort of final things they wanted to add that they haven't haven't managed to say yet? No, only that the second part of the self-harm um, e-learning module will be uh, coming out soon. Um, and that, I think we've mentioned, really focus on the kind of things that Gemma was talking about uh, towards the end of this broadcast, uh, which is about treatment, legal frameworks and, um, you know, longer term outcomes. Great. Thank you, Alison. Thanks to you all for joining me today. And also a reminder to anyone who subscribes to CPD online, you can complete the short MCQ test for this podcast. And that means you can then download uh, CPD points. Thanks to you all, because it's been a really rich and interesting conversation.